and we're live. What's going on, Spencer? How's it going? Good, good Landon. How are you? <laughs> good, good, man. So you sell real estate in Los Angeles area, right? Yeah, that's right. Primarily Woodland Hills, Calabasas, Westlake Village area in LA. Okay. So you're dealing with like pretty wealthy clients then? Uh, a good number of them, you know, have some cash, but you'd be surprised. There's a lot of areas kind of circling those areas, Simi Valley, uh, Coga Park, uh, some parts of Winnetka, and Thousand Oaks even, where it kind of gets caught in my database and where I'm working. A lot of people are trying to get into those areas too for, for entry level money and they're, they're starting to, you know, they're yeah. starting to fill those areas up too. So, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of people with, uh, you know, some very good financials in my Yeah, area. yeah. That's cool. So your lead system, how does it work exactly? Like what are the leads kind of like? Are they super ice cold or what are they kind of like? Sure. Sure. So the majority of, of my leads are, are part of my database. So these are people that have either seen me um, do print marketing or digital marketing. These are people who have, uh, who I've worked with them as either personally, or maybe it's a referral through somebody I work with, um, or it's just someone that I met from picking up the phone and calling them. 99% um, uh, of what I do is lead generation. And so spent a lot of hours during the day, just picking up the phone, calling people, starting conversations about the real estate market and what it looks like. And that's generally how I've had to start getting a lot of my leads. Now that I've been doing that for a little while, it's starting to pick up. I'm starting to get people reaching out to me, you know, people in the area. Uh, but yeah, the majority of my leads are people that I have sourced myself personally. Um, I, don't, I don't like using any third-party lead gen um, service. What I've found is that it's just as cold as when I go in. Um, and so I just felt I can use that marketing money to better use it, just pick up the phone and call myself. Yeah. So when you're just picking up the phone to call yourself, like where do you even get the number to begin with? Right. So there is a program that I use called Vulcan 7. Now, this is a program that myself and my team uses, and it pretty much generates all properties within a given area, phone numbers, names, you know, prior agents. It can tell you the status of a given property. Um, and so this is kind of like a, it's, it's a database you know, of sorts of properties that have been listed on the market, whether they're active, coming soon, withdrawn, uh, expired. And um, all I need to do is select a city in which I want to search it. And it spits out all the numbers that are associated with that property. And I start dialing and I pretty much have to scrub that first to know which numbers are good and which numbers are bad. Okay. So these are people selling their houses? Uh, the ones that I, that I usually call are people that have either try to sell their home in the past and I've either withdrawn the listing, canceled the listing or the listing expired. And so the desire to sell is there. It's one conversation I don't have to have with them or at least it's not a fresh conversation. It's something they've heard already. And so the desire to sell was already there. So I can come in and try to put myself in front of them as an expert more so than the person that they were working with previously. And that's how I'm able to kind of get in the door that way. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I bet I bet with that, there's a lot of, first of all, figuring out like, why were they trying to sell? Like, what was their intention behind it? And then what went wrong? Like, why didn't you yeah. sell the house? Yeah, definitely. The biggest thing is, you know, a lot of the times it's any home that is priced properly with the right marketing should sell every home, especially in a market that's as hot as LA right now. Um, you know, different agents, different teams will have their strategies on how they market but for a lot of these people, it's either they priced it too high at the wrong time, 
um, or um, they, maybe there was something about their home that wasn't um, you know, looking quite as nice when it came to show it. Uh, some homes show really well in the photos, some homes show really well in person, and you really need both. And for some people, um, a lot of times it's a, uh, I don't know, it's a combination of whether or not they, they wanted to do the extra work to get their home ready, but then it also comes down to, you know, forming a plan, having a strategy, having an agent that, you know, knows the area, knows the market, knows how to sell their product and can do it well for, you know, more money. Because in reality, that's, that's what these, that's what people who sell their homes want. They want the most money. They want the most eyes on their property and they want the most people in the front door to get it done quickly. Yeah. Very high expectations. Uh, definitely across the board. Right, right, right. Like a lot of, um, not like, like everyone thinks their house is probably like super special and they want like mm -hmm. probably more than it's worth. Is that like very common that they want more than it's worth? It, it, it is common. I mean, everybody thinks their home is special. Just like you said, you know, everybody thinks their home is, you know, this is, this is the one, this is nicer than the one across the street. Um, yeah. And it, it's kind of, it's, you just have to explain it, right? You have to come off, you know, you have to say it a nice way. You got to just basically explain, you know, um, your home looks like A, B, and C, and the other home that looks like X, Y, Z may have sold for more because of this. And you have to show them. One thing is when, I, when I'm talking to somebody that tried to sell their home previously or wants to sell their home, and they're going to tell me what they think their home is worth because I'm going to ask them. And if it's close to what I think, the conversation could go one way. But if it's very far from what I think, I'm going to have examples to show them, okay, this is what a home in this condition sold for right within this area. This happened two months ago. The market is different now. Or maybe your home doesn't have these amenities. Or maybe their lot was bigger. Or maybe it had issues with the sewer. Something like that. I'll explain that and show them proof in front of them so they can see, okay, I, I know what I'm talking about. Maybe the home isn't worth as much as I thought it was. Or maybe I should list the home for maybe something competitive. Do what we call price to sell, not price to sit. Um, something competitive to where it'll get people in the front door. They'll love the home. A lot of times people need to see the home in person. You know, they yeah. might have a budget when they see the home online, but as soon as they walk in the front door and they love it, all of a sudden they have 50 grand, hundred grand more, right? You have to see it to love it. And uh, in some cases, a lot of people price their home too high. It doesn't attract as many people in the front door, but you price it right and get people in and then they love it. And you get multiple offers, then you get them bidding the price up, and then you get that that number, that elusive number that you saw your buddy down the street sell their home for. Now you get that same number because you went about it the right way. You had the right strategy. Okay. Let me ask you this. So I've never sold a home before or owned a house. Sure. Everything I'm hearing from people is like, or just what I'm seeing, like the overall market in America, just the overall consensus that I'm hearing is that everything just sells like in a day, two days or something like that and way above bidding. Is this all pretty true from your experience yeah. right now? Yeah, that's very true. Um, <laughs> LA has an inventory problem right now, right? For, for the state of California itself, we're about 3 million homes short. You know, we've got about a 45% rental rate in the state of California. And by 2023, we're looking to be um, a 55% rental state. So prices not only are going up, but because of inflation, it's, it's just harder for people to be able to afford homes. They're having to purchase homes way over asking price. Right now, if you're a buyer, 
you can take advantage of that because rates are low, but you have to have the capital to get into it. So yeah, a lot of times if it's a home that's got all the bells and whistles, it's selling within five days, it's selling you know, 10% to 20% over asking price. And uh, a lot of sellers are very, very happy. But still, and even while, like even in this market where it's crazy busy and there are so many offers for every home, even then, there's still an inventory problem. There's still an inventory issue. There isn't, there aren't enough homes on the market for every buyer to really have any advantage or leverage. And that's why buyers are having to spend so much money. That's why they're having to go over asking price and do all these different things in offers right now that normally buyers wouldn't have to do. But right now they just have such little leverage because it's such a hot seller's market. And yeah, most homes are selling in five days. Yeah. So you're like yeah. a really, you're like a really valuable part in that ecosystem because you're just trying to find people willing to sell. So you're like, you know, bringing in the inventory. Mm -hmm. So once mm -hmm. you actually find someone, it's probably pretty easy to get it sold, right? Definitely finding the people, right? Uh, generating the, the, the sellers is the, the, the most challenging part of the business um, because there's such a little inventory and there's a lot of agents, very, very saturated market full of agents. And of course, not every agent is the same, but everyone I know knows an agent. Everyone I know has a family member that either was an agent or still hangs their license somewhere and they can get the job done. A lot of times people will go that route. But in, in this market, if you have a buyer that has the funds, you know, someone who has a little bit of deeper pockets, who understands what it takes to buy, yeah, you can absolutely uh, be pretty successful if you have the right buyers. But at the same time, I've got hundreds of buyers. If I have one listing in a given area around where, my, where I live in Woodland Hills, um, I'll have at least 10 buyers that I know personally that want that house. But wow. that, that's another story. Then we talk about conflict of interest. You want to make sure it's fair for everybody involved, including the seller. You want to do what's best for them. And so in that case, you know, I would definitely uh, show the property to my clients. But of course, you want to make sure you allow other buyers to come in and everybody gets a fair shot. You don't want to be biased. So like how many, how many homes would you sell in like a typical month? In one month? Yeah. Depending on how busy it is, um, you do one a week. Three, one a week, three, okay. One a week or three a month, depending on how busy it is. There's some months where I've been able to do uh, one a week. I've done, you know, three a month. Um, and it really just depends on how, how fast you're able to lock them down, how fast you're able to convert, um, you know, buyers or sellers into escrow. Um, and you just want to have a healthy mix of both because you want to get experience on both sides of the transaction so you understand all of it as a whole. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting sale in terms of, it's just an, it's an infrequent sale, you know, like there's different sales you can do where you're selling like one a day is pretty average or, you know, a couple of weeks is pretty average. But for yours, it's like, I mean, you're not really closing the deal that often, but obviously you're getting paid a lot per transaction, I'm sure. Um, mm -hmm. So it all, it always equals out, but mm -hmm. do you like that where it's kind of spread out your transactions are? You know, I, I, for me, if I did, if I average, you know, three a month, I'd be, I'd be pretty happy with that. Um, I don't mind that it's spaced out by that much because truly, you know, as a single agent, you know, I don't have an assistant. I don't have an agent working for me. Um, I'm hands-on everything. And so if someone needs to 
go see a home, I'm showing it to them. If somebody wants to hold an open house, I'm holding it for them. If some if someone, an agent needs to talk or I need to negotiate or take care of different paperwork, I'm hands-on for all of it. And so I want to be able to offer a certain level of service to all of my clients, whether they're buying or selling. And by doing three to four a month, that's that takes up the majority of my time. I think that's where I'm I'm healthy at that point. I'm able to work with each client, you know, specifically and individually for what they need and give them the service I want to give them at that rate. If I picked up a fifth or a sixth deal per month, I would need to, I would need to bring on more help. I would need yeah. to bring on yeah. an assistant. I would need to bring on a buyer's agent. Um, but it's, you know, the, like you said, the compensation per deal is more and it does start out, you know, not as frequent as let's say, you know, selling payroll for ADP where you can do one a day. Um, but in this case, um, you have the ability to increase your frequency depending on just how hard you want to hustle, how well you're working your farm, um, how many calls you want to make. You have the ability to do so, definitely. Um, it's just a lot harder because the timeline for you know the inception of the idea when it comes to talking with a client and then when you actually close the deal, it's 60 to 90 days usually. Yeah. And so yeah. The, the work that I'm doing now, I'm going to see the fruits of my labor come to fruition in a month and a half to three months. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's how that's how it is in mortgages, which is the mm -hmm. field I'm in. Obviously, there those two fields are interconnected. Um, yeah, it's like you you sell the deal, but it's not really showing up on your paycheck for a little while, you know. Which is interesting because it's a it makes it so like the real estate type sales they're very um, you know you have to build relationships with the clients over these long periods of time which is which is cool because it, it's cool if it goes well but then if it goes bad like you know if the client someone gets upset kind of easily or if there's different things that go wrong you got these huge headaches on your on your hands that will drag on for a month plus um so that's always something kind of funny in, in real estate is uh the length that these transactions drag on for like with other sales, you know, mm -hmm. you sell it, it's done in a lot yeah. of different people's uh, industries. It's just done mm -hmm. and you move on and you don't, you don't keep dealing with the person for a month or two or three after that. So that's always something kind of funny about working in real estate. You know, I, I like that. I actually, I like, you know, I'm, I like that I'm able to, you know, keep those relationships going because I look at each one of my clients, they're investing something in me, I want to turn around and invest that in them. And so me investing my time and my effort after the transaction, that's actually what I have found is that that's what separates an average agent from someone who really cares is because a lot of times you might, you know, work with someone and you sign them on as a client for whatever cert, whether it's software or whatever kind of, you know, HR service or, you know, any kind of product you might be selling them. Like you said, you bring them on, you sign them, you, you know, run your first two payrolls or you, you know, do your onboarding call, then they're good to go. And it, it hits your, it hits your number and you move on. Right. Yep, yep. But you're right. In my case, I've gotten to know these people within the 30 to 45 to 60 days that we have been discussing, talking about what they want to buy, what they want to sell. Some clients I've been working with for six months, some clients I've been working with for a year. We haven't been able to find them the right home that really fits what they want. And I don't like to push you know, some, some industries, right. They do a hard close, you know, you yep. want to go in to close on the first deal. And, and, and that's, that's the main goal for the way I like to do business because purchasing a home is such an emotional buy, 
right? There's logic into it. You know, there's financials, there's logic, but it's such an emotional thing. It's such a big responsibility. I don't like to push. And I have found that I'm able to build a relationship with my clients over time and keep investing my time. And then when we're done and they're happy with my service, you know, they're able to give me, you know, a nice review that I'm able to share and they're able to tell their friends who tell their friends. And eventually all of that is going to, you know, once it's multiplied X amount of times over the course of a year, eventually someone who knows them is going to call me and ask me to help them because they got a good referral from their friend. And so I, I actually like the fact that I, I get to, I get the opportunity to build these relationships I don't think I'd, I'd find much, um, I don't think I'd like, I'd like this as much. I don't think I'd like the real estate career as much if it was just kind of turn and burn because I've done that. I've worked in different sales environments where it was a hard close on the first deal. I've worked in, in, in different environments where that is, that is the goal, right? That is the standard. And for this, it's a little more, it's a little slower, it's a little more drawn out, but I, I feel like it's more my speed because I, I enjoy the connection. I enjoy the relationship. To me, that's one of my favorite parts of the job. Yeah, I feel like I feel like um, different personality types thrive more in these relationship type roles. Because I mean, if you're just a nice person who's like trying to help them, you're probably going to thrive a lot better than other people. You know, if you care about the relationship, you're going to be in business for a long time. If you care about the transaction, you're not going to be in business very long. Because the client that that's the deal. They are the deal. They are the transaction. It's not the home that they're buying. It's not the home that they're selling. It's them. They're the deal. They're, they're the product. You know, you want to make sure that they are happy. You want to make sure that they're taken care of. That's you. That's my job. Yeah. So before this, you were selling was ADP. Actually, before this, I was at a digital marketing and web development company called Scorpion. Okay. And prior to that, I was at ADP for a couple of years. Um, and that was my first sales job at a college. And, you know, very much first experience to, to corporate America. You know, okay. very much, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, this is this is the cubicle, this is your laptop. We have a roll call meeting down the hall, and everybody gathers there and we pop each other up and we talk about different products. <laughs> partners and vendors come in and someone someone always pays for lunch because we want them to refer them on Fridays and you know, very much um, that was kind of my first like boiler room, if you will, you know, experience. And I learned a ton. I got, I got, I got my butt kicked when I first started there that I just had not experienced anything like this before. And I really had a wonderful manager and mentor and I, I just soaked up everything like a sponge. You were there for how long? I was at ADP for two years. Two years. Okay. Two years. Yeah. Yeah. ADP for two years. Um, and I, I had this, I felt like when I got to that job, like I had something to prove. Like I really, really had something to prove. I originally went there to apply for a position as a sales associate. And I ended up getting like an intern position as like, uh, God, I forgot what it was called, but it was just like an intern position where I would have this role for like a month and see if I could prove myself. And I just worked as a mentee underneath another associate, you know, salesperson. And they would train me and I would go out with them and I would learn what the day-to-day -day was. And if they thought at the end of this four weeks that I was worthy, they'd give the manager a review and, and then I would either get hired on as an associate or they would say, it's not for you. And I would, uh, they would show me the door. And luckily they, I, I, I did pretty well and I had a wonderful mentor at the time. And then 
had a wonderful manager and a wonderful boss there for two years. And that's what made all the difference. Okay. It reminds me, it reminds me of, uh, my buddy's company that he was at back in the day. I, so I took a gap year in college mm-hmm. and lived in New York city. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was like, I would have been a, um, junior in college. I think I just took like a gap year and was living there. One of my buddies was working at ZocDoc, which is kind of similar to ADP in the sense that it's like, you know, a, a SaaS company where they're okay. hiring a lot of people right out of college. Mm-hmm. I remember I went to his work once and I, like looking around at the coworkers, I was like, these people don't really remind me of salespeople, but it was like, you know, they're hiring people from college for these sales roles. So I think a lot of these SaaS companies, I would imagine they have high turnover rates because they're getting people from college and they just have a big name that's like kind of famous. And I think people are like, oh yeah, I'll try like the sales role. Mm-hmm. I imagine that the turnover would be really high. Is that correct? Turnover is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely because because it is, you know, if you're if you're an outside sales rep, you know, you're not sitting behind a desk, you know, just making calls. That's one of the things you're doing. But if you're at your desk, you're not doing your job. You got to be out there. You got to be knocking on doors, pounding pavement, go see your referral partners at either the banks or CPAs that you would work with, pull referrals from them, get businesses, set net news, have appointments. You're not supposed to be at your desk. And so it's hard. It's very, very challenging and it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of dedication and a lot of time. And a lot of people out of college, the reason why, you know, ADP, first of all, has the best training program I've ever seen. Like to be a product of that training program, the reason why that company has a lot of turnover is because other companies that are sell like products, whether it's Paylocity or Paycor, um, what, you, know, tr- you know, whatever other company that does, does, you know, human capital management would pull from ADP because... The training program is amazing. You know, as a yeah. product of that training program, like I can see why other companies would want associates from ADP because their training program just teaches them how to sell and it breaks down the process, whether you're learning focus selling or you're learning how to close or set net news, whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, definitely when I, when I was in my second year at ADP, we would go back to the headquarters in Jersey and you would see all the people that, you know, did their training at the same time you did when you started. And then again, you know, six weeks later from the following year, I think at the beginning we had a class of 66. The following year, I think there were like seven people that were still in the company <laughs> out of a okay. starting class of 66. I kid you not. And it's, you know, some people, sometimes it's tough, you know, some people flame out, they get burned out or they'll, they'll, they'll score one massive deal and then dip and go somewhere else. Yeah. So when you say their training is great, what do you mean by that? When I say the training, I've never, great, I've never worked at a company that I sure. thought their training was great. So that's why I, that's why I ask. So it's extremely hands-on and immersive, right? So you are in a classroom, you know, you're in groups. You, there are other associates at your table. There's probably 50 people in that one room, you know, whiteboard on every wall. And you've got, you know, a, a binder that has, you know, company policies, you know, various training manuals. And there are people that have succeeded at this company for like five, six years, some longer, who run different offices around the country. They're in this room training. They're your teachers. And it's extremely immersive. And you're there for four days. You go to the headquarters in New Jersey. And you're there for four days. And I think it was four days. Maybe it was longer. I don't remember. But it is just completely from eight to five. You are in there. You are living, eating, breathing 
the sales process at ADP, the product at ADP, the history of the company at ADP, the important people who work at this company. And they almost, they do it so much. The, rep the repetition is so good. And the, the literature they give you is so good that it's just ingrained in your head, right? And of course, they make it seem positive. You're gonna be successful. You could do this after the, afterwards. You can get promoted to that. You can make X amount here, there. You can go to, you know, administration. You can go into a different, uh, you know, department. You know, they really, they sell it to you. And while they're, fe while they're feeding you the Kool-Aid, they're also teaching you how to go out and be this passionate to other people. Extremely immersive extremely time consuming and it's extremely effective they absolutely know what they're doing absolutely yeah okay what's funny about when when a company trains you know they're i think i've never i've never worked in sales training but i imagine that one of their things that they notice helps a ton is really like sell sell all the people on that the company is like the best thing ever because the people don't know any better. Like if they're just coming into the company, they don't even know if this company is the best in their industry, but if they just believe it's the best company in their industry, then when they go out there, they're gonna do super well. Because at my current position um, in mortgages, like I come into the company, they're like, yeah, it's like the best company in the industry. So I'm Culture, just like, man. I don't know anything about the industry. So I'm like, oh, I guess we're like, you know, the best one mm -hmm. in the industry. So then I, you know, hit, then I hit the phones and I'm just, I believe it hundred percent because that's what I was told. So I'm like, yeah, we're like the, you know, we're going to be the best company, yada, yada, yada. And I was telling it like a really good clip because I believe that. Mm -hmm. But then once I, once I started like continued working, I would be comparing like my loan to like a competitor and I'm like, oh, okay, we're like actually kind of an average company. Like we're not necessarily like the, the very best thing ever. So then my conviction went down like a little bit um after actually being in the industry and like realizing mm -hmm. things and i had this one client that called me back um well he was actually he's not i haven't sold him yet necessarily mm -hmm. but he called me back this week i think it was and he's like yeah i remember like you were just saying like this was the very best company so that's why i came back like it didn't work out with the other people i ended up moving with so i wanted to give you guys a shot and i was like look up like the date that i first made contact with him and it was like the first week I was even on the phone. So I had like so much when everything conviction. is fresh when you're jacked fresh, yeah. and you're ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I just, uh, I always remembered you. You were just saying that like, you know, it was literally going to be like the best loan ever if I went with you. And I'm like, that's so funny <laughs> that it was my first week and it, it made that much of a lasting impression because I, I had that much conviction. It's, I mean, you, would you, I mean, do you believe in what you sell? Do you believe in the product? Yeah, absolutely. Do you believe in it more than a competitor? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. But even if, even if it's just even if it's just an average, you know, you found out you were like, okay, we're kind of middle of the road. It's still something that like is ingrained in you. Like you believe in this. You would you would purchase this. You would buy this over a competitor. Yeah, like I still think it's really good and I still would buy it over um over a competitor, mm -hmm. but I don't quite have the um, the unrealistic idea of it, mm -hmm. thinking that it was like you know so so much better than anything else. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I get it. The, I mean, and to 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 point, you know, this this client that you're working with, I mean, the job is the job. You have an advantage. You know, he remembers something. He or she remembers something you said. 
And I mean, first contact, how many, how many, how many prospects call you back and remember something that you said in your first contact? Those two things. It doesn't happen. It doesn't like happen one, very one often. Yeah. Even if that, you know, if one, or, you, know, if, you know, even if that, you know, so, you know, that's, that's a big advantage. And then the fact that they already had a poor experience with a competitor, another, another advantage, you know, yeah. you don't really, you know, the, the sale isn't, you know, you don't even need to sell them on it. They're already sold on it. You know, you know, it's one of those things where you could talk your way out of a deal. You don't need to say much. They're already sold on the idea because they came back to you. Yeah. Another funny thing is like, um, it, I always forget just how much more knowledge I have of the product than the customers. Cause it just seems like, like, you know, once you start working in a product, you just start building this crazy wealth of knowledge in it. And you kind of th- assume that other people kind of have a similar, um, knowledge base. Um, but it's like, I mean, if someone doesn't work in the, in that industry, they really know, like their, their knowledge of it is so small. Um, I think sometimes I forget that. Um, I don't know why, I don't know why I always, I always think it's just interesting, like just how much more, you know, about your product than, than mm-hmm. others. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, when you talk to somebody, you know, they, let's just pretend they know nothing, right. They know nothing about loans. They know nothing about mortgages and they're calling you or you called them. Our first job as salespeople is to educate them, right? right. We have to come off as the expert immediately. We've got less than five seconds to convince them that we are the expert or they just hang up. And so, you know, you have built up this wealth of knowledge, like you said, not just about your industry, but about your product, the history of the product, your competitors, um, and, you know, how it's affecting those in your marketplace and your prior clients. You've got stories you can use, um, but a lot of people don't do that. You know, a lot of people don't do the small things, right? They don't continue the education on the mortgage you know, market. They don't continue to dig deeper and find out, um, you know, how certain transactions have gone in different situations. They don't learn those little nuances that really makes you stick out. And the same goes for me. There's a lot of people that will take their test and they'll pass. Fantastic. Good job. You studied. Congratulations. Go, go make a living now as a real estate agent. And for a lot of people, it's very, very challenging because even if they put in the work, even if they make the calls, even if they do the dials, they're not doing the little things. They're not learning. They're not studying their scripts on a daily basis. They're not learning those secondary and, and, and tertiary questions that really get to the why behind what a client wants to do, buy, sell, lease, rent, move out of state, whatever it may be. Um, you know, they don't really understand what's normal. I even had to write an offer. Some offers I've received, I would never write to somebody else with a realistic expectation of that offer getting accepted. And you, you see very quickly, if you're busy in the market, if you're busy in mortgage, if I'm busy in real estate, you see very quickly when you come in contact with other people and how they present themselves and how they either write their offers or how they conduct open houses or just how they communicate in general, um, you realize very quickly that not every person in your line of work is equal. And a lot of people, they don't do what you do. They don't, they don't, do the little things they don't study they don't continuously try to achieve more knowledge about what they're doing right as long right as, you, as long as you as long as you can keep coming off and educating your clients learning more that's the value right there because every i mean we have to give value right away that's the most important thing the other they can go to anyone you know clients can go to anyone oh yeah they come to us 
and and they'll be ruthless about it too like mm-hmm. they will go to the competitor and have no remorse for your no, for your it's, existence it's, it's, it's not personal it's just business and sometimes in my case like just business well you, you kind of take it personal when there's 20 grand 50 grand 100 grand on the line depending on one on one transaction depending on the price of the home and so sometimes you sometimes it's it's a little more challenging not to take it personal but then you know as corny as it sounds you know you either win or you learn you can't lose you know you have to learn from the situation you didn't get that client if you didn't get that listing if you didn't uh, achieve that home for your buyer what's another way I could have gone about it what's something else I could do next time how do I learn from this what's something I missed how can I go back and look at what I did because like we only only thing we can control is how we react to these things and sales is tough in any industry it's tough because it's very it's very cyclical nothing is ever guaranteed yeah so you always have to continue you always have to keep at it yeah yeah in terms of in terms of the knowledge another thing that that i always kind of i always find kind of interesting is the the clients if they've been shopping around if they've been dealing with other people other competitors they start picking up on little tidbits of information here and there. Although it's extremely spotty, they are learning little bits here and there about your product. So if they've been shopping, let's say for, because sometimes they haven't been shopping and, and when you get them, they're completely fresh. They know nothing. You're going to educate them from ground zero. But sometimes some other rep has already educated them, you know, over the last couple of months. And then they're coming to you and they kind of have this, this knowledge base. Um, it's interesting what people pick up on from getting sold to, you know, like once they get to me, they'll, they'll be like dropping terminology and knowledge about mortgages. And I'm like, how did you know that? Like you had, you had to have picked that up from another sales guy, you know? Yeah. Why, why did they, well, let me, I would ask them, okay, obviously you're educated. Have you spoken with somebody else about a mortgage? Have you worked with a lender previously? You know, in my case, have you, have you worked with another agent before? You know, have you been looking for a long time? Are you just starting now? Is this your first home? Have you purchased a home prior? You know, where are you getting this knowledge from? What is what is your level of experience? I want to know, is it, you know, minimal to zero? Is it medium to fair? Is it, you know, a lot to an expert, right? And that will tell me a lot based on where they're at. But I always try to educate from ground zero. Even if they've got a lot, I'll always try to educate from ground zero because there may be a chance that I'm going to say something that even if they know a fair amount or a lot, they may never have heard before or a strategy they may never have thought of or something that just never occurred to them through their process so far. And so I'll always, you know, try to start from ground zero. I don't want to assume they know anything because a lot of times they could just be, that could just be a front too. Right, right, right. That's what I was about to say. They could just be really good at acting like they know things. Mm-hmm. So if you go, oh, okay, I guess that they know it just as much as me about the product. Let me let me skip over all these things. Like you're gonna screw yourself over, you know? Yep. Like you yeah, have you have to assume it. you have to assume that their knowledge base isn't that large mm-hmm. because it it almost never will be. If mm-hmm. they have not worked in the industry, it it can't possibly be that large mm-hmm. in this particular unless, product. Unless they're active, unless they're active in the mortgage industry, like you are every single day keeping track of the market, making calls, knowing specific things that literally only you would know. Right. Unless they're doing that, they don't know as much as you do. Yeah. They know as long. So you always know just based on that fact, you've got something you can offer always because they don't know as much as you do. 
because yeah. they're not doing it. They're not doing it on a day to day. Why would I do surgery on my dog if I've never been a vet? Well, a lot of people want to sell their homes themselves. Why, why do that? There's a lot, there are several parts of, you know, a lot of people might want to do that to save a few bucks and not pay a commission. But what you're really getting from an agent who knows what they're doing is a lot of value. And a lot of times more, a higher sale price on your home comes with that value. And so you're really getting a lot for what you're, you know, compensating your agent for. Um, and in this case, why would I, I'm, I'm going to give my dog to the vet. I'm not going to do surgery on my own animal. I don't know what, I don't know what to do. I wouldn't know the first thing to do. I'm going to have the person who actually does it day to day, do it. I'm going to trust them. I'm not going to try to do it myself. Right. That's right. Why people go to, they go to experts like you they go to people, you know, who know, who know what they're doing. That's why that guy called you back because you gave him, you gave him enough value. You gave him something that's stuck. And, uh, and apparently they didn't lose your number. Right. Right. <laughs> this is a little bit off topic of sales, but this is always something I uh, was curious about. So I worked mm -hmm. in the mortgage side. So, you know, I'm seeing all these real estate transactions happen, but from my point of view as the mortgage guy mm -hmm. from the real estate agent, how does it work that you get paid? Like, where does the money come from that you get sure. your percentage? Sure. So the compensation is controlled by the, list, the listing agent and their client. So someone who's selling the home, it always starts there. And so the listing agent, you know, when they meet with that seller, will say, okay, you know, I sell this home for normally between five and 6% commission. And we automatically give the buying agent two and a half. Two and a half is like the agency standard. A lot of times when you look online, you know, when I look on the MLS, I'll see what the buyer comp is. Usually it's two and a half percent. That's the minimum for wanting buyers, agents to get into the front door. If you offer less than two and a half percent, if you want to keep more for yourself, or you offer 2%, eh, maybe some buyer's agents won't sell your home to, or won't show your home to their client, even though they should. Sometimes they won't because there's not enough in it for them. But in most cases, it's, you know, a 5% commission that's split 50-50, two and a half to the listing agent, and two and a half to the selling agent who's helping the buyer purchase the home. And when it's closed and escrow's done, the money will go through the broker of the listing agent and that brokerage will pay the listing agent. And then the buyer's agent percentage will go to their broker and then their broker will pay the buying agent. So it's never direct from the, the uh, listing agent to the buying agent. There's no transaction. There's no exchange of goods for services there. As an agent, we work for the brokerage. We're an agent of the brokerage and the brokerage is the one that pays us and they get their, um, they get the compensation through escrow. Okay. Um, but so the home sells mm -hmm. and then Where does the money come from? Like, so mm -hmm. the money, the money goes from the person buying it, their mortgage company sends the money for the person selling the home. And then they just take a portion of that and give it like 5% of that and give it to mm -hmm. you guys basically. Right. They take, they take off what the, so whatever the net is, right. Whatever the net is after, you know, fees, taxes, um, any other kinds of, um, things like, I don't know, closing costs, mortgage fees, title fees, whatever it is at the end, the fees for the agents, 
will come out of whatever the net proceeds are from the sale of the home. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if that's 50 grand, right? If it's 5% of a property that the listing agent agreed to sell it for, and the commission is 5%, two and a half to the listing agent, two and a half to the selling agent. And that two and a half percent gets split out to each agent from their respective brokerages because the listing agent could be working for a Colwell banker. The selling agent could be Compass. And the brokerages receive the funds from escrow after the home sold and then will pay their agents. But the money comes from the uh, net amount that the, uh, that the seller is going to get after they sell their home. They have to pay their agents as well. So it's basically like the seller, it's, they're going to take like what they're getting for selling the house and then mm-hmm. they're going to minus like what they have to pay their mortgage for. So to pay their more, their actual mortgage off on the house. So they got to pay that yeah, off. They, that's that's like the biggest left, thing. If there's a loan, you got to pay that off. Pay mm-hmm. it all off, pay that in the closing costs. And then what's left over, that's what you get 5% of. You know, there's a, it's an agreed upon amount, right? So it's never like the agent is shorted. There's always an agreed upon amount that is specifically used to compensate the agents in whatever the net pay is. And of course, maybe let's say if, if, if for whatever reason, I mean, this, this has never happened to me before. I mean, I don't, I don't think there'd be an instance where, um, you know, you'd close on a house and they couldn't afford to pay their agents. Um, I've never seen that happen before. It might've happened um, in different scenarios, but I think there are um, clauses and documentation in place to protect the agents so that I'm, I'm actually certain they exist so that the agents will always get compensated, right? And so whatever is the agreed upon amount, if you net $300,000 from the sale of this home and you agreed to pay your listing agent you know, 50 grand for the sale of this home, they're gonna pay them that 50 grand and they're gonna take half of it and keep it for themselves and they're gonna take half and it's gonna go to the other agent and their brokerage will pay that. That's how okay. it works. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. So those big, uh, if you're doing it with those type of percentages for a, a home, it's like some pretty big commissions on, on real estate. I mean, two and a half percent from a property. I mean, two and a half percent, let's see here. If I sell a home for a million dollars, two and a half percent is 25 grand. Yeah. A lot of homes around here, the medium price is approaching a million dollars. It's very, very close. There are homes in this area that maybe two years ago were on sale for $750,000, waited 12 months, sold them at the height of the market for 850, and they ended up closing for 916. Like with 12 months from the original market date at 750, 12 months later, you sell it for, you know, you sold it for a considerable more amount of money, you know, $163,000 uh, $163, more than what you originally wanted to sell for. It's happening all over the place. It's happening in West Hills, Woodland Hills, Calabasas, Agora, Westlake, Encino, Tarzana, in larger numbers. Homes around those areas are selling for well over uh, asking price um, and the prices continue to go up. Yeah, yeah. that's best incredible. Time, best time to buy was yesterday. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's incredible commissions, man. That's incredible commissions. I feel like there's different sales that you just get these huge commission rips, like real estate's one of them. I know that if you sell like 
people that I hear that, that work in SaaS, if they sell like a big account, they're getting like a huge commission rip off of that. Cause you have to think how much business you brought to the SaaS company. Like if you sell like to like another big company, you just brought so much business over many, many years, mm -hmm. uh, more than likely, you know, there was, there was one guy that I, there was one guy that worked in our office. He was an, he was an international enterprise sales rep for ADP. And he had like a corner of the country was his territory. And the main players were big. These were Fortune 500. These were NASDAQs. These were Dow Jones. These were big companies that he was trying to target. And, you know, one commission check from one of these closed deals could be like 75 grand, you know, could be more. Some yeah. of these guys, they just, some of these guys close three deals in a year. That's, that's commission on top of a base. A lot of these companies like ADP, like Paycor, like Paylocity, um, you know, some other uh, loan companies too, I believe, you know, their model allows them to give you a base salary plus benefits with all these different perks and trips you can win. And then at the same time, you get commission on top of that. And of course, everybody has their model, you know, you make a certain amount of commission up to a certain point that they take a little bit off the top. And when you get to that point, okay, the rest is yours. And it's a very familiar model that I've seen at a lot of sales companies. But yeah, these guys, if these guys were sharks, if they were aggressive, if they sold a lot, they made a lot. And it yeah. was on top, it was on top of a base. Like it was on top of a base salary. But of course, these guys have been working for the company for 15 years, for 20 years. They weren't just new, they don't just offer these positions, these compensation models and packages to new reps. You really gotta, you gotta go through the through the grinder to earn this. Same yeah. thing works, the same thing works in real estate. You cannot walk into a two million dollar home, a three million dollar home on day one and expect it to go perfectly smooth because there are just so many scenarios, so many things that you don't know, so many, um, you know, so many pieces of etiquette or certain manners you might not know that this isn't written down. Only reason why you learn why these things are either acceptable or not acceptable is through your experience. And so like, I didn't, I didn't close my first million dollar property till like a year and a half in. And it just, but at the same time, it was the most challenging, rewarding, you know, difficult, but also like easy process I did because I had got to apply so much of what I learned in the past to this one transaction. And it allowed me to navigate through some challenges, some things that, that came up that might not have been anticipated it allowed me to use what I learned in the past on this deal to make it work. We ended up closing on time and everything was, was perfectly fine, but, um, you know, definitely a little bit of a, you know, definitely a curve, definitely a learning curve when you get up to that certain point so you, oh, you, yeah. you have to be in it for a good amount of time. You know, you can't just expect yeah. One. yeah. That's amazing, man. Um, anytime people are making those big commission rips, it's like, that's, um, it's really cool. Yeah. So one question I want to ask you, was there ever a time, I guess when you first got into sales, was there a time that you were bad and then you, you know, you had either epiphany or you learned something and then you got really good. Did that type of thing ever happen to you or? Yeah. Um, I wasn't too good when I started and it wasn't because I didn't lack the, like, I had the ambition, right? I had the ambition. I had the energy. I had the, the will with all. I had the you know, my desire to create relationships. And I, 
understood the sales process as it was laid out in front of me, as I was trained in it. But I was really excited for step number eight when I was only on step number two. I really wanted to get to the finish line and I really wanted to, you know, get to the end um, and get to, you know, get to the fun part when I, I was missing these other steps that are crucial when it comes to either building rapport or establishing that I'm the expert or setting a precedent or, you know, building a, a strong relationship or communication with my client. And I definitely had to slow down. I yeah, definitely yeah. had to slow down. I had to take things one step at a time. And as a matter of fact, I read a book. I read a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. The best book I ever read, I ever read, excuse me. And this book just breaks down every day as just a bunch of steps, a bunch of small individual things that happen. And if you're on step number two and you're thinking about step 300, you know, at 4.30 p.m. when you're planning for the next day, getting ready to wrap up or when you're headed out to your last appointment. Um, you know, it's, it's one of these things where you, you can't think about it that far in advance. You got to take everything one little step at a time. So just worry about the next thing you have to do and then the next thing you have to do and then the next thing. That, that finish line, right, that, that thing you're chasing is not going away but you can't skip the steps in between where you are now and the finish line because there are certain things you're supposed to do. There are certain things you're supposed to learn. You don't want to short change your client or yourself in the, in the sale or the experience. And so I, I read that book and it changed everything for me. It changed how I approached my daily life. It changed how I approached my lead generation habits. It changed how I approached how I sold and that was probably the biggest difference maker to me is just look at, look at just the next, the next occurrence, you know, the next phone call. If I'm, if I'm cold calling and I want to do 200 dials today, I don't want to think about dial number 198 when I'm on dial number four, I'm going to think about number five and then number six and then number seven, you just work it one day at a time, one thing at a time and try to block off whatever's afterwards. That's the challenging part. That's what took a little bit of training that I had to do. Um, but definitely just that book by a James Clear, Atomic Habits, huge, huge help in just okay. focusing on how to break down my day because I don't have anybody breathing over my shoulder. I don't have a sales manager with an offer with an office down the hall. I have, I have my office. I'm self-sufficient. And that's how you need to be in this kind of an industry because no one's going to give you the pep talk to go out and close. You got to have, you know, you have to have the inner, the inner desire to do so on your own. So you were, you were trying to, just close the person when you said you want you're focused on step eight you would just skip over and be like let's sign you up kind of a thing i was getting ahead of myself i was getting ahead of myself i was always going in for the hard close yeah and i wasn't asking enough questions really is what it was i was not asking enough questions i was not finding out the why i was not finding out enough about that client to successfully recommend a service or a product that fit them i was kind right. of throwing shit at the wall and hoping something would stick. Sometimes uh -huh. that worked, but then I realized that the process wasn't as smooth for me either. It wouldn't be smooth for them. It wouldn't be smooth for me. It would work and it'd be okay. But if I want to put, if I'm gonna put my name on something, it's gonna be great. It's it's not gonna be just okay because somebody else and they can go somewhere else. Everyone, any you know, any salesperson could just be okay. But in this aspect, I would just try to hard close them 
right away. And I wouldn't ask enough questions. Is really yeah. What I can. Yeah. The asking the questions, that's a huge thing because that's something that I've, I've realized recently as well, because, you know, every client has like their own world that they're existing in that's completely unique from another person it might see or another client it might seem like they're the same like oh you're looking for a house and you're looking for a house it's the same thing right but like it's really not because they have different lives which differ greatly so mm-hmm. to really figure out like who is this person what are they really trying to do for real mm-hmm. that's huge because it, it's a puzzle to try to figure it out um so if you're if you're focused on kind of solving that puzzle um, I found it, it helps so much to, uh, to do that. That's what I found out kind of recently. Yeah. You one know? thing I did as well was I, I made assumptions. Yeah. Right. I, I exactly. would assume, I would assume that they wanted to, you know, they wanted to, they didn't want to monetize. I, I would assume, let's say if I worked at Scorpion, you know, I would assume that they, you know, wanted to do pay-per-click advertising. Well, that's not always the case. Maybe they're looking for something else. Or I would assume they would want uh, a discounted, you know, um, setup fee. And I would already come in and shortchange myself. Or, you know, maybe working at ADP, I would assume they wanted to get paid bi-weekly because that's the most frequently. Well, actually, they want to get paid monthly. Okay, I might assume that that's all they want rather than, oh, maybe they need workers' comp. Maybe they need some type of HR resource. Maybe they're looking for benefits for their, you know, employees. And I think when it comes to a scenario like that, asking enough questions means you're not going to leave money on the table. You want to make sure that your client has not just one need that's met. You want to find out what all their needs are because you might have a recommendation for what they're looking for, but you'll literally never know unless you ask. You just can't assume. And that is one of the issues that I have when I first started and definitely something that I I work very hard not to do anymore. Yeah. Well, yeah, that that's a lot of their objections are them objecting to your assumptions. Mm-hmm. Like, cause you're, you're basically assuming and then just trying to be like, let's do this. And then a lot of their objections are like, no, I don't want that because you didn't even figure out what I wanted, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's like really what a lot of customers objections are is just, it's just that. I think, an obje- I think being able to overcome objections is an art form. And a lot of times an objection can be, I mean, I think an objection truly is the client just wanting more from you. Explain it to me more. Show me another example. Give me a story. Give me an example. Tell me about a time where this scenario happened with someone you worked with and you recommended this product or this service. And here's how it turned out. And make sure that when you tell the story, the client is the hero. You don't talk about yourself. They don't care about Spencer. You know, they don't care about land. They don't, they don't care about what we're doing. They want to know how our value has affected our clients in the past in a positive way. And how is that value going to affect them in a positive way? They want examples. People need to be shown why it's going to work or why this is right. Or maybe why this strategy isn't the right thing to do. You know, mm-hmm. you could talk them off a ledge. Maybe if they want to go a certain route and you have an example where somebody went that route, it, it didn't look, it didn't turn out well for them. Um, and so, but all of that just comes with experience. You know, it's one of those things where you, you pick that up, but it's very difficult to pick that up day one, week one, month one, because you just have a very limited amount of experience. Yeah, it's very true, man. Well, 
it's been a great podcast, man. I think this, uh, it's really popped off in a good way, man. I loved it. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You know, it was, it was great. You know, it was great chatting with you, man. I, uh, I enjoyed it. Let me know when, uh, let me know if you want to do it again. Absolutely, man. Appreciate it, Spencer. We'll talk to you soon, man. Take care. Okay. See ya.